This sermon is a presentation of Grace Bible Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. At Grace Bible Church, we exist to help all people know Christ as Savior and Lord, to grow together as believers in Christ and our love for Him and for others, and to reach all people with His gospel. First Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. Now while you're turning to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, starting at verse 4, I want to talk about uh, the concept of the desire to be a people. A lot of times when we talk about the desire to be a people, that's something that maybe for a lot of us um, doesn't mean as much we talk about being a people, we're talking about being a nation, being a part of this larger group. And there, there are lots of ways for people today desire to be part of a people, whether it's a desire to be a part of a, a larger group, something bigger than themselves, um, through a certain political party, through a certain club or organization, um, through a certain level of income or status in life, there's that desire to belong and have purpose. On maybe a smaller level, there's a desire for us to be a people. Maybe for you, you grew up and um, you didn't have a very strong family. Maybe you didn't have any family at all. Maybe you grew up in a children's home and you said, I don't know what it's like to be a people. I am just me, this one individual. But there's a desire in every human heart to belong and to have a purpose in your life. Belong to something bigger than yourselves. And I would say to belong to a people. We see this in our culture so much um, through certain movies. And the desire to not just be out there alone to have no identity, but to really belong. And think about movies like Annie, right? Everybody knows Annie, Yeah. Annie was an orphan, and she eventually, it's been out for a while, so I don't think I'm spoiling it for you. Okay, eventually she gets adopted um, by this guy who is a millionaire, maybe billionaire, incredibly rich man. We, we see those things, and we're excited for Annie because she finally went from being a, per, a person who had no people to having family, to having people. We see this all through movies. We see it all through our culture. And, and, and through all of us, we desire to be part of something bigger, some kind of group. And a lot of us succeed in becoming part of something bigger than ourselves, some kind of group. But at the end of the day, any of these groups that we join, any of these people and groups of people that we align ourselves with, at the end of the day, those things won't last. They won't last past our death. Or maybe the organization the group will dissolve even before we get to our death ourselves. Now I'd propose that the only way to be a part of a people, to be part of a nation, to be part of something bigger and greater than ourselves, in any meaningful, lasting way, is to become a part of God's people. The question then is this, well how? That sounds good and that sounds great. What do I do? What actions do I need to take, some of us may ask? What deeds do I have to do? How can I become a part of this people? Do I change my name? What is it? Well, let's see what First Peter, what Peter has to say in his first epistle. So First Peter chapter two, 
Starting in verse 4, we're going to go through 10. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen, and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Well, Father, for those of us here this morning, for who this is true of, that once we were not a people, but now we are. Once we had not received mercy, but instead we were under your judgment, but now we have received mercy. God, we, we praise you for the great grace you show in this, the great love that was not required of you. Lord, thank you for making us a people. Lord, help us to understand what it means to be your people. Help us to understand what it means to be built upon this cornerstone, Christ. Empower us, Lord, to live out what your people are supposed to be doing, as the text says here, offering these spiritual sacrifices through Christ, proclaiming your excellencies. But help us understand your word today, both with our, our minds to grasp the meaning and with our hearts to understand what your spirit is calling us to believe and do in light of these texts. Help me, Father, to <clears throat> speak your word rightly. Lord, help me to um, represent you and your word well, Lord, and help me um, to push through the what seems to be the beginnings of a cold, Lord. <laughs> be glorified in your word proclaimed this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our main idea this morning is this, and so I'm going to say it twice if you want to write it down. Our main idea, our thesis, however you want to put it, is this. God's true people are those who are built on the cornerstone and live lives, or and live, excuse me, to offer sacrifices to God and to proclaim his excellencies. So say it again. God's true people are those who are built on the cornerstone of Christ and live to offer sacrifices to God and to proclaim His excellencies. So as we read this text, as we go through the Bible, even just look at the big picture of the Bible, we see then this desire to be a people. The importance of being a people, importance that's probably lost on us because we live in an incredibly individualistic society. We are all about just what can I do on my own. We think very little about the group, in whatever context, whether it be church, 
school, community, society. We're very individualistic. So for us, maybe we should look to God's word and just see the idea of that we're not in this alone. We see the desire to be a people, and not just any people, but how good it is to be God's people. As we read this, I would wager, I guess, that uh, probably all of us here are what we'd call Gentiles. I'm not totally sure on that, um, but I know a lot of you, and so I know that's probably the case. We are not ethnically Jewish. We are Gentiles. We are ones whom at one time the promise of Christ, the promise of I say the promise of being God's people had not come. And so Peter, and as we try to, as we walk through this, try to pull apart, what kind of group is Peter speaking to? And we've talked about this, really believing this is a mixed group of people, some Jews, maybe probably more Gentiles. We see, though, in verse 10, the reality. He says, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As Christians, this is our reality, and this is kind of the summation of the whole text. We find it here at the end, so we're going to start at the end, and then go back to the beginning. He says all of this to sum it up by saying, before you were not a people, you had no people. You had nothing to speak of that was of benefit, of privilege, of goodness. But now, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, instead you were under the just judgment and wrath of God because of your sins. But now you've received mercy. And these two things go together in a way that we cannot pull them apart. The receiving of mercy, the identity of God's people. So this is us. And he explains how they got to this point. And he has really two points, and this is where it kind of gets confusing um, here. And, and honestly, this is a text which has a lot in it. So I'm going to warn you up front that uh, in the time that we have today, uh, we're going to be kind of hitting the surface of this. And, and there is a reason for that. I know that a lot of times um, there are different preaching styles, and some people like to go one verse at a time, or maybe a half of a verse at a time, uh, maybe a couple words. And there are some days when I... Uh, some sermons where I may do that, and there's some where we're going to get the big, cohesive picture of what is happening within this text. So while we could go through and break this down and go through it verse by verse over a number of weeks, what I want us to understand today is the big picture idea that Peter is getting at as he writes this. And that's that thesis, that's that main idea that I said earlier. So how can we say that once we're not a people, but now we're God's people? How can we say that once we've not received mercy, but now we've received mercy? We're going to see Peter unpack that by essentially talking about two concepts. Becoming God's people. What does it mean to be God's people? What is the entry point? What is the thing that hinders us from being God's people? And then what it looks like to live as God's people. And he does something interesting here, and uh, this is another aside. I think it's important for us to consider and it's this. He kind of starts off with an interesting structure because he talks about this living stone in verse 4 who's rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And then he says that you, verse 5, 
are being built up as a spiritual house or holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he kind of gives us the two categories there. Christ, the cornerstone, which has a huge part to play in becoming God's people. And then the identity, or what it means to live out that identity of God's people, these living sacrifices. Then he's going to unpack it in a bigger way. So within those two verses, he says, Christ, the cornerstone, rejected by men, and you, like living stones, and how you live these spiritual sacrifices. Well, then we move down, and we're going to see in verse 6, 7, and 8, and unpacking what it means that he is the living stone rejected by men. And then in verse 9, looking more at what it means to be the chosen race, the royal priesthood, what it means to have this identity, and what it should look like, proclaiming his excellencies, and being a people where we once weren't. So we see here he kind of gives the beginning in two parts, and then he takes those two parts and expands on them. This is helpful for us. Like I said, this is an aside, and I say this because I don't often want to dive into kind of the structure and how did I think through the structure in my sermon prep, because that's something that I spent a lot of time doing. But it's important for you as you're reading to ask and say, why, why did the Holy Spirit cause this writer to want to put these things in this order? To give these things this structure. And understand that the structure that is put here, it's not just something they, they just came up with, but the Spirit is leading them as they do this. And so their structure is showing us something, and it's showing us the emphasis of the text. So my encouragement to you is to read your Bibles carefully, to look and see what is the structure that's happening here, what is being unpacked, the things being repeated, um, just what is the overall structure. So let's dive in and start looking at what this text is. Like I said, we're, we're going to hit the high points. There is a lot um, that we're going to get to. Um, you can get to some of that in small groups. So that's a pitch for small groups. Um, you can also get to some of that in personal Bible study. If you have things, you look at these and say, we didn't, you didn't really touch on this, Ethan, and I am kind of confused on this. Come see me and let's talk about it. I'd love to go in deeper with you on some of these things. But so first we have this idea of becoming God's people. It's interesting because in a discussion of God's people, he talks about the identity of Christ as this cornerstone, the title, and just being identified as a cornerstone. And at first glance, we look at it, and it's just like, how do these two things go together? I know that I struggled with that, and I talked to Joe about it. How do these two things go together? First of all, we're talking about being priests and all of this, and then Christ being rejected, and what does this all have to do with one another? Well, as we consider what it means to become God's people, essentially becoming God's people means that we're not stumbling over the cornerstone. So Peter is talking about Christ, this living stone. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. He calls Christ this living stone. Which is not what we think about stones. Whenever I try to explain to people, I remember whenever I taught actually right here at the school um, around the corner here, and I was trying to explain the idea of what is life in biology. If I had to give an example of what does it mean to, for something to be alive and not alive, my, my first example of something that's not alive, that doesn't reproduce, that doesn't grow, all of that, is a stone, which is the perfect example, because it doesn't. It doesn't. One stone doesn't make another stone. One stone isn't alive and, and can reproduce, or it doesn't grow and get bigger. So we often think about stones as things that are not living, but instead, um, maybe we wouldn't say are dead, but just not alive. Peter then chooses this word, Christ is the living stone. 
What an interesting choice of words. What he is getting at here is this. Christ is the living stone because he is alive. Now, why is it important that Christ is alive? Well, it's important that Christ is alive because at one point, Christ died. And Peter sees all of this firsthand. And Peter maybe saw uh, more than any of the other disciples because he's there hearing Christ tried when he denies him. He sees huge chunks of Christ's life. And he sees him go to death. And he feels the weight of the, the confusion. And we remember this as we went through the Gospel of Mark. And as we went through the Gospel of Mark, we talked about how Mark was likely a disciple of Peter. And when we say the Gospel of Mark, it's Mark the, is the one who penned it. This is likely the account of Peter. And so Peter is pretty hard on himself in the Gospel of Mark. And whenever Christ asks them who he is, he says, you're the Christ. But then right after that, Jesus talks about, I'm going to have to go die. And Peter rebukes Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter feels the weight of the misunderstanding, of the confusion. How can the one who is supposed to be the Messiah, how can he die? Well, by this point, he has learned and he has figured it out that Christ came to live a sinless life. And he came to be one who is both God, fully God, and fully man, and who lives a sinless life. And he doesn't die because he messed up. He doesn't die because God played his hand wrong. We see this in the book of Acts, the very first sermon. Peter says that Jesus was was killed by the definite plan, or according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was the plan all along, that he would come and that he would die. And in dying, because he was perfect, he could take on our sins, which we could not handle ourselves. Our sins, which would only cause condemnation for us before a holy and righteous God. And in his death, he takes on our sin, and he pays the penalty for sin, which is death. Not only that, he then gives us his righteousness. He imputes his righteousness to us. This is a big deal. This is what we're having this Reformation service tonight with these other churches. This is what the Reformation is about. Christ's righteousness imputed to us, not earned by us. Not us building up righteous works and deeds, but Christ giving us his righteousness. So Christ comes and he dies to fulfill the plan that's been happening and unfolding through the entire Bible. He dies and they say, how could this happen to our Messiah? But then he comes back to life. Then he is resurrected and shows that he has complete and total victory over the grave. Complete and total victory over death. So Christ is this living stone, and because he lives, we have a hope of life. But not only that, Christ is this cornerstone. That's how Peter describes him. <clears throat> and he quotes, it says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then he goes on to say, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this stone is a stone of stumbling, and it's a rock of offense. When we talk about a cornerstone, a cornerstone is the one which sets up the building for the rest of the stones. 
we don't normally work in this way. Maybe a, a better way for us in our day and age and in our, the way that we build would be to talk about um, a foundation. We have to lay a good, solid foundation. If the foundation is off, if it's wonky, if it's not square, then the whole building is going to be compromised. It's a lot of what the cornerstone's purpose was. The cornerstone was truly a precious stone because it was high quality. It was cut well. It had these sharp corners and it could hold a lot of weight. Whenever you placed it, it gave the angles for all the other stones as they're pressed up against it to make sure the entire house was square. The entire frame of it was not going to be compromised. And it says he is perfect, chosen and precious, which are words that maybe we think of even as a gem, a gemstone, chosen, precious. The idea, though, is here he is this cornerstone, which is of great value. We talked about this in the Psalms of Ascent, how Jesus is the cornerstone and on him we are being built because we now are the temple of God. Verse 5 says, You yourselves are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. In 70 AD, 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. There is no longer a temple. And it's fitting. It seems to be as part of God's plan because he was making a new temple. In Christ, a new temple was coming. The one of which he is the cornerstone. And so now, for us as living stones, we're being built up into this house. And we talked when we talked in the Psalms of Ascent about the, the house of God. It's not, what's special about it is not the materials it's made out of necessarily. It's not the location that's in necessarily. It's the fact that God's presence is there. Above all those other things, the reason that the temple of God is so great is because the presence of God dwells there. The tabernacle which preceded the temple, was where the presence of God would come down and meet with his people. And the temple is built, and the presence of God comes and rests in the holy of holies. But now for us, the Spirit resides in us. We are where God's presence dwells. And the only reason that we can be that kind of building, the group here, the church, both here and us as a part of the universal church, the only reason the church can be the place where God's presence dwells because we are built on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Now, there are people who look and say, I want to be a part of that building. When they say that building, they mean the people of God. I want to be a part of that building. I want to be a part of that temple. I want to be God's people. But some people look to Christ or look and say, I believe in God, this idea of God. I want to be a part of the people of God. But then look to Christ, the one through whom our God has revealed himself. And Hebrews 1 and 2 speaks of how in the last, these last days he has spoken to us through his son. He's revealing us through his son. That's the idea of the word in John 1. It's revealing that Christ does. And some people, though, who want to be a part of this people of God, want to do it, but they don't want to do it on that cornerstone there's some people who even say they believe in jesus but at the end of the day have a fake cornerstone there are those who deny his divinity deny the fact that he is eternal and say that he is a created being all kinds of ways that they can deny that cornerstone and they say i want to be a part of god's people but i don't want to trip over that cornerstone 
But God, through Peter here, is telling us this is the only cornerstone on which God's people is built. So as we look at this, the question is this, do you want to talk about a wasted life? Church, a wasted life is one that pursues God but rejects Christ. That is something that is truly waste. Think of all the energy that goes into these groups and these cults who say, I want God, but I don't want Christ. The reality of it is there's no God's people without the cornerstone. There's no temple without the cornerstone, which is Christ. So they need this cornerstone. It's only the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who is truly God, truly man, provides the squareness, provides the stability to build any kind of building. But there are many who stumble, many who trip and fall over Jesus. And Peter says that they were destined to do this. That language may seem a bit uh, ambiguous here. What does he mean they were destined to do this? Does that mean that kind of God has always foreknown? Did he set it up? But, but the, the word underneath here is always clear. The assigning and the destining is one that happens from God. But regardless of what's happening behind the scenes, and things like that are important to work through. What does it mean that they disobey the word because they were as they were destined to do? It's important. That's not the focus of the text today. Regardless of what's happening behind the scenes there, people are claiming to be God's people but to reject Jesus. And this is not God's way of building a people. The question is this, are you then a part of God's people? The prerequisite for being his people, for being his temple, for being the spiritual house and this holy priesthood, for being all these things, this chosen race, means that you are being built on Christ, who has died and who has been, cru- who has been crucified and who has, been, who, who has risen. So are you part of God's people? This is what it means to become God's people, to be built on the cornerstone. Now our next point is what it means to be living as God's people. So we've worked through these things. Like I said, we're just taking, kind of hitting, <clears throat> hitting the surface on a lot of these things. We want to get the bigger picture. We've seen the reality of verse 4 worked out through 6, 7, and 8. How Christ is this cornerstone. Whoever believes in him won't be put to shame. But he's been rejected by some. They can't believe that he would die. They can't believe that he is the living stone. Because how would he, what does it matter if he's living unless he's already died? That's how we become God's people. We want to talk about what it means now to live as God's people. And we see this worked out in these lists. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That's verse 5. Verse 9 says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So we have this list. I'm going to give it again. A spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We have these lists of what it means to be God's people. And here's the interesting thing about it. These descriptors, these words that describe God's people, have always described God's people for early, or at least have for a very long time. 
Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, our scripture reading uh, earlier in the service, says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Well, this is interesting because for us, we're not the people of Israel. But now Peter is talking to this group of New Testament Christians and he is applying these things to them. He's saying you shall be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And there's lots of places we could go to kind of work through these. Um, this is the only one we're going to do for today, Exodus 19. These are all things that designated Israel at one point. And he says, but now this is us. The question is this. Why now is this us? This is us because God is creating, and he always has been creating, a people. That was worked out at one point as a nation. Now God is creating a people. And now we have been brought in to be grafted into this vine of God's people. And there are those who ethnically are a part of God's people, ethnic Israel, who have rejected him, who have denied this cornerstone, who have stumbled over it and fallen over it and said, I don't want any of this, and have been cut off. So for us, he's saying, listen, do you know what it really means to be God's people? These aren't just things that we can say about someone just because they were born into a certain group. These are things that are true of people who have been born into God's family, who have been adopted into his family. This is your reality, that you are a spiritual house. And so for us now, because we've been born into the family of God by the Holy Spirit, by this imperishable seed that we saw just last week, now... We can say of us, what was once just for ethnic Israel is now true for those people who are part of this true vine of God. Now we can say that we are a spiritual house. A spiritual house which is versus a physical temple. So we are where God's presence resides. We are this holy and royal priesthood. We're like Christ in the sense that we have been made truly holy. He has given us his holiness. He has given us his righteousness. In the same way, we have been given a, a state of holiness and, and having Christ's righteousness. We're also called, called to be holy priests, not dabbling in sin as these past priests did. If you go through the Old Testament, especially Isaiah is one great place, Ezekiel 2 speaks of it, you see where the priesthood of God didn't just dabble in sin, but they plunged themselves wholeheartedly into sinning against God. And he says, this is not how it should be, but I desire a, royal, or a holy priesthood. Not only that, though, but we're a royal priesthood because we've been brought into the family of God. We are now brothers and sisters of Christ, co-heirs with him. And so we have this royalty about us. So we're not only your priests who serve, but we have the state of royalty. We're a chosen race, those who are chosen by God and by his will. We're a holy nation set apart as a group to be representing Christ before these other nations, these other groups. So we're a people for his own possession.
He possesses us. And he does this by his choice. What we mean when we talk about possessing something is to have something, to own it. It's yours whenever you possess it. And we are possessed by God because he has purchased us with the blood of Christ. And now he has us. He holds us in his hands. He says, this is mine, bought by the precious blood of Christ. So he says, you can be a part of my family, a part of my people, by not denying the cornerstone, but being built on the cornerstone of Christ, by trusting in him. And that means that you are all these things that we listed, this holy royal priesthood, this holy nation, a people for his possession. But then he says two things. Verse 5, what's the purpose then? Why? Why are we made his people? What does it mean for us? Does it change how we live or do we just kind of sit back and say, okay, so we get to have these great privileges and this is great and, and just go about with our life and wait until we die and go to heaven? That's not what Peter says. He says, you are you're built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices, is the first thing he says. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There are those who offer sacrifices. They were looking forward to Christ. They were in the form of saying, there was one to come who's going to be the final and full sacrifice. But it's not through Christ. Some can take the image of what God intended to be a, a beautiful picture of what was to come then say, take Christ out of it and rely on actually the blood of those bulls and goats and rams. But for us, the only sacrifices that we can make are through Jesus Christ, that reflect Jesus Christ, that have him in mind. And that we're not called to be making the sacrifices of animals anymore to cover our sins. And that was all they did was cover. They didn't take away. They didn't cleanse. They covered for a time. But Christ has come. And through his death and through his sacrifice, completed the work. So now we're called to make spiritual sacrifices, not to save ourselves, but in memorial to Christ and what he has done for us. So the question is this, well, what is a spiritual sacrifice? I'll try real quick to go through a list of just a few ways, a few things that are referred to as a sacrifice for God's people. First of all, is the idea of our bodies being offered as a sacrifice. And certainly our bodies are physical. There's a spiritual aspect to it. Let's see what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And this is our spiritual worship. This looks like us not being conformed to this world, to the lusts of the flesh, to all the things we might want to do with our bodies, but instead to say, this is my body. is a holy offering to God. The praise and the worship that we offer up to God is a sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 15 says this, Through him then which is Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The sacrifice here is praising God. The very next verse, Hebrews thirteen sixteen, Do not neglect to do, the good, to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Here the sacrifice 
is doing good to one another, sharing what we have, showing a love that imitates the love that Christ has had for us as he did good to us, as he shared what he had with us, which is eternal life. Souls saved as a result of the witness and the work that we do may be considered a spiritual sacrifice. Romans 15, uh, 15 through 16, Paul says this, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, and priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. There's a sacrificial love, which is a spiritual sacrifice. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, as, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Christ, as he gave us offering and sacrifice to God, so we too aim to. And finally, prayer. Psalm 141, 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. We are called to offer spiritual sacrifices. We are called to live lives where we sacrifice much, where we give much. These things here require something of us. Offering up our bodies requires us to sacrifice our own desires for it. To offer up praise to God is sacrificing our own desires and saying, I would only praise God in this situation, but to praise God whenever we should is to say, God, I trust you. I trust that I can praise you, even though things aren't going the way that I should. Sacrificial love, sharing what we have, is a sacrifice because we are giving of time. We are giving of ourselves. All these things are spiritual sacrifices. And he says, I have called you not just to become a part of my people and then stop doing anything, to stop taking any action, but instead you are made for action. You're made to offer sacrifices. No longer are your sacrifices to save you or to keep you saved. They're to reflect the salvation that has happened as Christ himself was sacrificed. Second, and finally, we were made his people to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into light. We see this in verse 9. So he gives the whole list. You are all these things a chosen race, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous right light. This seems to be the greatest fulfillment of Old Testament Israel. There's a sense where we are offering sacrifices, which is in some sense the, the perfect fulfillment of what's happening. We offer sacrifices in light of Christ's sacrifice, and that's a fulfillment of what we see in Old Testament Israel. But even more so, is the idea of proclaiming God's excellencies. It seems to be the purpose that God intends for his people. That they may be a holy nation, a nation set apart. As people look on them and look on their lives, they see this is the true God that they serve. And we see this happen here and there, unfortunately not as much as it should have. We see it... <clears throat> In places like Daniel, where Daniel and his living 
for God and living the way he should and the way God has called him to, proclaiming his excellencies and trusting in his excellencies. That the king says, wow, Daniel's God is the true God. This is what God has called his people to do, to proclaim his excellencies in light of what he has done for us. Because he's called us out of darkness and into light. As we consider even the Exodus 19 passage, around verse 3 or 4, in the beginning of it, God is saying that he is the one who brought them out of Egypt. He has brought them out of slavery. He has brought them out of condemnation, out of darkness, and into light. And in the same way, we have this new exodus, not out of a country, but out of our sin. And so now we proclaim his excellencies, and we say, do you see how great my God is? I don't think he's great because he's my God. I think he's great because of who he is. Because he has saved me. Because he brought me out of darkness into light. And if we truly believe this, if we truly can look on what we came from and say, that was truly darkness, that was death, that was condemnation, but God has saved me. How can we do anything but proclaim his excellencies? How can we not just say that everything he does is excellent, perfect, fully worthy of worship? (laughs) So for us, we have been made God's people. The key to being God's people is not tripping over the cornerstone like, the, like some did. But he says there are some who think they're my people, but they have rejected the cornerstone. They have rejected the whole foundation of what it means to be my people. But there are those who believe in this cornerstone and trust in him. So I'm making them my chosen people. They are part of my chosen people now. And they have a purpose to offer these sacrifices and to proclaim the excellencies or to claim my excellencies, he says. This is God's purpose for us. So out of this then come a couple questions, and we'll be done. Is Christ the cornerstone of your faith? Is he truly the cornerstone? Is he truly the foundation? Or for you, do you want the idea of some God who can do things for you, who can answer prayers to help you out financially, to help you out in sickness and all these things. And is that the God you want who say, I, you say, I want this God, I don't want the foundation of Christ. Is Christ truly the cornerstone of your faith? Is he everything? Is he the entire key to the whole thing? Or is he maybe only a small stone to you? Have you reduced him down, filed him down to just a pebble? that you can't possibly trip over because you've stripped away in your mind everything about him that makes him unique. Everything about him makes him different from every other religious figure in history. And so you look at the Bible and you see the miracles and you say, well, you know, surely they embellished that, right? You see the virgin birth and you say, well, you know, that was just a translational thing. It's really just young woman. So many people strip away so much and they file down this cornerstone in their mind until he's only a pebble. And they couldn't possibly trip over him. But the Christ of the Bible, that's not an option for him. He's either the cornerstone or he's not. So to you, is he everything? And he's the foundation for all that it means for you to relate with God. Because if he's not, then he is nothing. I urge you today, if he's not the cornerstone of your faith, you say, I'm not sure, I don't know what it means, but I know that God 
someone that I should be reconciled to, I feel like. So what does that mean? How, what should I do? Come talk to me after. It's love to explain to you what it means to see Christ as the true cornerstone and to have salvation in him. And then, for you, Christian, as one who's part of the family, does your life, do you live lives as one who actually look like God's people, who are holy, who are set apart, who are living as priests, who have spiritual sacrifices in your life? Does your life have these spiritual sacrifices? For us, as we talk about what it means to be adopted into the family of God, this royal family, and now we're a part of it, and we're sons and daughters, and we have this great inheritance, <clears throat> this may seem counterintuitive. Because you see, for some of us, we hope to one day be rich and have a family that has lots of money. And maybe right now you're not in that place, and so you have to make lots of sacrifices day in and day out, and you have to sacrifice much. You say, if only I could get, my family could have a lot of money. If only I could, maybe if you were an orphan, you say, if I could be adopted into a family who had much, I would never have to make these sacrifices anymore because I'd be going to a place of privilege. And for us, we think that then more privilege means less sacrifice, but not so in God's family. Philippians 2 spoils that all for us. We see that Christ, who had every reason to hold on to what he had, he set, up, he set aside that privilege and he came to earth and became man to die for us, to be a sacrifice for us. So for you, if you're part of God's family, you should be living a life that has these spiritual sacrifices in it. You should be living a life that proclaims God's excellencies too. And you say, once I was not a people, once I was a part of nothing, once all I had coming from me was hell. But praise God because he has saved me. Praise Christ because he died for my sake. We have a great and glorious calling, church, to fulfill God's call for his people, which is from the beginning, to bless the nations through the spiritual sacrifices that we make and to bless them by proclaiming the cornerstone on which our entire faith is built. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that once we weren't a people, but now we are, God. Once we didn't have received mercy, but now we have. Help us to understand what it means to be your people, to understand the great privilege it brings, but also to understand the great responsibility it brings, to live lives that gives these spiritual sacrifices through Christ, and to live lives to proclaim your excellencies, Lord. Help us to be what you've always called your people to be, even from the beginning, what you've called Israel to be, a kingdom of priests, whom their neighbors could look on and see and say, these they serve the one true God. May it be true of us now that we live in such a way that people would look on us and the praise of your excellencies that we offer and the sacrifice, the spiritual sacrifices that we make through Christ and because of Christ and his sacrifice for us and say these people, they serve the one true God. May we live as your people even though we're in exile on this earth. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us for this sermon. If you would like more information about Grace Bible Church, you can find us online at www.gracelostcrucis.org.